Hey everybody, this is Eric Beatner, your host, and before we get started on this episode, I just wanted to take a minute to talk about some stuff. We have avoided talking politics on this show because that's not what it's about, but there are times when someone with a platform must speak out, and now is one of those times. It is by pure coincidence that the episode you're about to hear features three writers of color, but I want to be unequivocal that I feel Black Lives Matter. From the very beginning, when Steve and I started the show, we talked about always wanting to feature a diverse slate of writers, and we've worked hard over the years to have parity with gender representation and to feature writers of all backgrounds, colors, sexual orientation on the show. The only criteria is that you wrote an interesting book we feel readers should know about. The crime and mystery community has been having some tough conversations lately about our own industry, but they are necessary conversations. I know we can always do more here at Writer Types, but I want everyone to know where I stand in these tumultuous times, and that is with my friends, my colleagues, and my fellow Americans of every color, as we hopefully can change some of the systemic inequalities that this country faces. This podcast isn't going to change the world, but I didn't want silence to imply indifference. Know that I believe in justice and equality for all, in the book world and in our nation at large and that our diversity is what makes us stronger. Thanks for listening. Now on with the show. This is Kelly Garrett. This is Alex Segura. This is Jennifer Hillier. I'm Alifair Burke. This is Attica Locke. You know what? That's an interesting question, Eric. That's a compelling question. Oh, interesting question. This is Rachel Housel Hall, and you're listening to Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and joining me as my co-host today is author Faye Snowden. Welcome, Faye. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, your latest book is A Killing Fire, and no matter what my kids say about me, they cannot say that I am a serial killer, uh, which is more than Raven Burns can say in this book. Uh, yes. But it, it's what I find interesting about this book is that you do rarely see the impact on a family when you know a serial killer is found out but i mean these are people's sons fathers husbands right yes yeah daughters yeah brothers yeah so i always wonder you know the impact and my father is a wonderful man he is definitely not a serial killer (laughs) Uh, but you know uh i'm a child of divorce and one parent you know disparages the other parent and you know you wonder you know how much of the bad things that your parent has done how much of that is in you or and you joke around with your spouse sometimes about your kids and you say well I do anyway and I say to my husband oh, that he, he gets that from you so I uh-huh. think that's what this book is about <laughs> where did all the <laughs> negative things come from <laughs> in some people yeah Whoa, that's now we're, now we're getting under the surface there <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Well, in this one, you write about Louisiana, and mm-hmm. uh, even though you are a California girl, you did spend some time there, right? Yes, I actually grew up in Louisiana. I started off in California, and then when my parents got divorced, um, I think it was around um, nine or ten, we moved to Louisiana. And then my mom told me we were going to Disneyland. That's our parents. Really? Yeah, she put us on a Ute Greyhound bus and says, okay, kids, we're going to Disneyland. And that was the longest trip to Disneyland I think we've ever had. <laughs> three days on that bus. And uh, we ended up in Louisiana, which was a total culture shock from being in California, you know, the weather, 
you know, they're all great people, but the, you know, the inherent racism and um, just some of the turmoil there. And, and that's where I spent my formative years from 10 until I was 18 and joined the Navy. Wow. Yeah. So you joined the Navy. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've asked this question of a lot of authors lately when, when they have a chosen profession, but then they, they don't write about it. So you would think that publishing would love like, oh, here's a former uh, naval officer. She's got to write naval thrillers, right? Have, mm-hmm. why, why choose not to, to dig into that part of your past? Because Tom Clancy beat me to it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, when that book came out and we were in the Navy, he wrote about the job that I had in the Navy. I was enlisted, but I was still all around the submarines. And, of course, I was unsure because at that time, females were not allowed on ship and submarines. But oh, wow. um, And he did an excellent job. But, you know, what? that's an interesting question, Eric, because I never even thought about writing you know, naval thrillers or, or anything like that. It was just, um, to me, it was like my college education because we, of course, I mean, we were very poor and could not afford um, college. And I didn't have the counselors at school that told me I could get scholarships. No one pointed me in that direction. So the Navy was my college experience. And so I don't think I would anymore write a thriller about you know, the Navy than in anybody would write a thriller about, you know, they're four or five years on a college campus. But that's an, <laughs> interesting, that's an interesting question, though. You describe uh, a killing fire a, a little bit differently. It's more of a straight ahead thriller uh, versus, well, how, how would you describe it, I guess? So put, put it in your words. I don't want to put words in your mouth. There. No, no, no. I thought it was a mystery. And then when it got to my publisher and they started promoting it, they called it a thriller. And I went, really? <laughs> um, a lot of things happen in the book. It's um, There's some slow parts, but it's uh, mostly action packed. And Raven, I mean, I mean, she gets into one scrape after another. So I, I think it's probably more like a thriller. And I was probably writing a thriller and didn't know. Well, and then in contrast, your Dr. Kendra Hamilton books uh, were more marketed as more romantic suspense. I mean, what, what do you see as the difference there? Yeah. So in the the romantic suspense ones, it was focused on the relationship, you know, and then the the crime was kind of um, kind of tangential to that it, where this and, and and I was really interested in romantic suspense. And um, and I also read a lot. My mom read Harlequin romances and and I read them. And uh, I remember this one time she was reading a Harlequin romance and we actually switched the books on her. We just kind of put, you know, put the bookmark in the same page. And she spent another, I think, 20, 30 minutes before she would realize she was reading a different book. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that that's, you know, I was really fascinated with romances. And I think that's why I wanted, I just thought, okay, I'm going to write a romantic suspense. And then as I got older, you have the story you want to tell, um, but you want to wrap it in something. And when I was a younger writer, I was wrapping it in romance. And now that I'm an, um, an older writer, I'm wrapping it in crime fiction. So, yeah. so, so, are you saying the romance is dead? Um, yeah, pretty much. You know, I, <laughs> <laughs> for me, yeah, as a writer, I think um, in this new book, I did manage to get the sequel uh, sewed for *A Killing Fire*, and I'm working on that now. And there's oh, a little tiny, tiny bit of romance, but not. It's not a central feature of the story at all. Right. Well, Raven's yeah. got she's she's got bigger fish to fry. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Who's got time for romance? Nobody. There's killers on the loose. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> yeah. 
Now, uh, so you mentioned that you've you've been a lifelong reader, and of course, all authors uh, read uh, probably more than the average person, uh, which means that we collect a whole lot of books. Uh, and apparently, your family has given you a, a rule on bringing new books into the house. Yes, my son told me because I have a lot of books that are out in my shed right now. We did some um, kind of little bit of light remodeling, and I haven't gotten the bookcases yet. And he told me yesterday that I am not allowed to bring another book into the house until I get rid of one of the books that I already have. No, <laughs> so, that's, that does yeah, not work. <laughs> I live with my grown children and my married son and his pregnant wife. And I said, okay, if you're going to take my books, you can just get out. <laughs> like, you take <laughs> you and your pregnant wife and get out. <laughs> you know, you take a fully grown adult male, It's that's like, you know, six feet worth of books to start. That's a lot of books you could fit yeah. in the space that he used to occupy. Exactly. And now, like, they turn in my office into a nursery, too. But I have a. Oh, so, so, yeah, I'm like, <laughs> but it's my first grandkid. So I, I will wow. trade maybe two or three books. For- <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, you also work with our friends at Sisters in Crime, right? Yes. Yes. I am serving as their secretary for Sisters in Crime National. Oh, so you, you, got, you got the whole country I, I was uh, I worked with MWA as their treasurer for but just just in Southern California oh okay it, this is a place where uh, this is a safe space Faye and uh, and I'm, <laughs> I'm sure she's not listening so you can tell us all what's Lori Raider day really like to work with um Lori Raider day is wonderful um, she's funny um, but I'm gonna say something that may get me in a little bit of trouble she is salty as hell. <laughs> This is not news. <laughs> yeah, it's not news. Okay, good, good. Um, she is very salty, and um, I I like it. And then um, all the other people on the board. It's a great board. We all get along very well. We can talk to each other, share our opinions. Everybody respects each other, um, which I think is really really important um, when you're when you're trying to do something for the good of you know a lot of people. Wow, you were you were describing a scenario that I do not see very often in America in 2020. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we got to be able to talk to each other, right? <laughs> yes. Please. Yeah. <laughs> uh. All right. Well, it's time for our first guest. Uh, Nikki Dolson is the author of All Things Violent, which is a book that I love. And she's back now with a short story collection, Love and Other Criminal Behavior. She's a prolific short story writer. So it's great to have a collection of her work. Uh, and Faye, do you do uh, many short stories? Yes, I am trying to get better at it. Um, I actually have a short story that's coming out in um, Low Down Dirty Vote, um, Volume 2, uh, that I'm really proud of. It's like one of those things you write, and I was like, I didn't write this. Somebody crawled into my body and wrote it. <laughs> it wasn't me. It wasn't me. Excellent. All right. Well, here's our conversation with Nikki Dolson. <laughs> You hanging in there with the lockdown? Uh, yeah, I'm surviving. <laughs> it's you know, I only have one bottle of wine left. And I'm not <laughs> like I'm saving it like breaking case of emergency when I really get bad. Yeah, <laughs> you can order that online, Nikki. Fred, I can't get any wine delivered to me because I Where would. Be- <laughs> oh. <laughs> Did you join a club? Yeah. And I'm like, do I want to do curbside? Because it's getting to that point where I really have to consider that. Like, 
<laughs> you know, I'm an introvert, but I miss everybody right now. Like yes. Everybody. And I'm not a hugger and I'm in California and everybody loves, you know, I call it slobbering and hugging all over everyone. Now okay. I just want to hug. I, you know, I want to hug the mailman. <laughs> I just want to hug everybody. Uh, well, we're here for you, Nikki. We're here to talk about some books. What do you say? Oh, that sounds wonderful. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Well, Nikki, you are back with your new short story collection, Love and Other Criminal Behavior. Yes. And uh, th- this is the most basic of uh, softball questions, but what do you like best about writing short stories? That I can. Um <laughs> <laughs> Like some of these were supposed to be novels. How about that? No. Uh-huh. <laughs> I have found such joy in other people's short fiction. Just, I mean, just the, the stories that linger longest for me tend to be short stories. And the goals I set for myself are always based on short fiction. I mean, I guess there's that saying that you can have a perfect short story and you can never have a perfect novel, which should tell me I should just go for a novel because it's going to be flawed. (laughs) (laughs) But to try to write this perfect little nugget that comprises a little heart and maybe a little humor, maybe a little thrill, just cool. I mean, I, I amuse my sister and that really, there's, there's nothing better than that for me. It's it's why I like doing it. You know, judging by the title, which I love, by the way, Mm -hmm. um, love and other criminal behavior you seem to have a fairly cynical view of love is is that true or oh i'm a romantic honestly (laughs) (laughs) but i do seem to only write about not fairy tale endings does it based on your own experience or just just... Uh, well when i started writing they weren't (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and then we segue into therapy on the air. Um, <laughs> yeah. Is there anything that gets you more motivated to to be reckless than the pursuit of love? Yes. It's true. I'm like, yes. You want to be loved and you go to the ends of the world to do it. Those are the great stories that, you know, the Lancelot and Guinevere and, you know, Romeo and Juliet. Love is the fuel that many have burned by. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. For me, I, I can't figure out some other way that somebody would do something that's stupid except for love. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to rob a bank. Well, you're not just going to rob a bank because you, you, you want some money. You need to have a really good reason. Well, it, it, we're, it seem to be hitting on a theme here. So I've, I'm curious when, like, when you're writing short stories, like, are, are you seeing that as a way to stretch and kind of and and write about different characters, different different kind of ideas, or do you find yourself when you like putting together these 15 stories, you took step back and took a look at it? Did you find like, oh, I I have a type of character that I write about. This is <laughs> this is my wheelhouse. It looks like. Yes. Putting these together, like when I sat down with everything I had written, I'm like, okay, this isn't good enough. No one should see that again. But (laughs) what was left, I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, I do have a thing for this. Or that I have repeat characters who come back. I hadn't realized I'd done that. Yeah. (laughs) I have a couple of boxing stories and I wrote one with this character and she has a name, Kendra. And then I wrote another boxing story. And by the time I got to the end of it and read through it a couple times, I went, oh, 
that's her again. Huh. <laughs> like, but they are years apart and I didn't walk into it that way knowing that. That's so interesting because it's almost like, um, like some, you know, sometimes I, I do a few short stories and sometimes I'll write it and I'll do that and I'll say, okay, this isn't very good. And, and then after I read through a couple of times, I do the same thing. And sometimes I just don't know where it came from or who wrote it <laughs> after. And it'll be like the same character or the same town showing up. So that's mm-hmm. really, really interesting. So another question that I had was about your, or that we have is about your short story, Laundry. Yeah. That's written in second person, and um, that's quite a challenge for the writer, and I think sometimes for the reader. Mm-hmm. Um, why did you choose to write a story like that? I, I I must confess that I'm a lover of second person. You are. I am, and and it probably has something to do with the therapy that I need. But you know, you put <laughs> a certain amount of distance between me as a writer and what I'm writing. You present tense in particular is just like, I think it gets at something that I have trouble doing in first person or in third person. And this story in particular, I tried to do it in first and in third, but I didn't connect until I could give that character, this woman, her her own distance from what was going on in her life. Now, do you think uh, second person is something that can sustain for a whole novel, or do you think it's better in short bursts like this? Um, I would say initially that I think it's better in short bursts, but, you know, was it The Prayer for Owen Meany? I think it is. Oh, I love that book. Yeah, I mean, it's... Oh, my gosh. And it's so excellent. And so I'm like, um, if you have the right kind of talent, perhaps a novel... (laughs) Is yeah. the way to go. So I should never do it, is what you're saying. Uh, friend, I don't <laughs> you think could pull anything it. Eric Wheatner can't do. So. Yeah, me too. You could pull it off. Yeah. <laughs> well, you alluded a little bit to the fact that some of these stories uh, were, were starting out, at least in your mind, to be something more ambitious, maybe mm-hmm. even a full length novel. I mean, is, is that usually the intention when you start writing a short, or are you usually setting out to write something short? I always assume I'm going short. Some of them were stretching the criteria, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, right. if, if it's 40 pages, is it really a short story anymore? <laughs> um, as hard as I've tried, I, I don't know how to structure a novel to, to pull that off. I mean, my first book is a novel I feel like in name only, because I mean, it originally were several short stories that were all linked. It was all... Mm. cupcake from beginning to end and i wrote them that way but they were all discrete pieces of it well nikki uh, you can do it faye and i are here to tell you (laughs) yes there there is a novel in there and it needs to come out yes (laughs) (laughs) thank you thank you yeah and it will i remember i used to your first novel was in name only and and i know people like you know, an author, you're not supposed to disparage your own work. But my first novel was also an in name only. <laughs> yeah. And it was one of those things like, why did you publish me? Because it's just kind of out there like this dead fish that, you know, I really wasn't ready to write a novel. But I learned how to write, you know, from that experience. I, and somebody thought it was good. I mean, they published it. But I learned how to write other novels, right? I learned how that I could do the longer work. And yeah, so I started off with the, the shortest form 
poetry mm-hmm. and then went up from short story, you know, novels. So yeah, yeah, it could be done. <laughs> but um, as someone like, you know, me, I mean, I have uh, a kids and you have, you're balancing writing with kids, pets and life in general. How do you find that balance in your life to fit in the time to write? I steal it. I steal yeah. it all the time. I just, the peak of my children being at their youngest and me writing at, you know, the most I could, literally, I was like, okay, you know, everybody go eat dinner. And then I would, you know, be at the, the kitchen counter scribbling something down and mm-hmm. then making eye contact and then scribbling something down. Like I do the same thing at work and I'm like, yeah, no, I totally am doing that. Writes on post-it note. <laughs> you know, I'm writing an email right now to myself. you know and I would send snippets and now now I have a notes app on my phone I'm in my phone all the time now and oh wow I'm totally texting somebody I am not I am in my notes app Mm -hmm. (laughs) I write that sounds like good tactics good tactics Well, I'd see, wow. I think that's that's the mark of a true writer it is someone is. who you you like you say you steal the time, you make the time, you you carve out those moments because you're compelled to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is a compulsion for sure. I am a happier, healthier person when I write. Me too. Yeah. It, yeah. it balances me out. And I maybe it's just taming that little crazy part of my brain that makes me a better person. <laughs> Because, you know, m- mama's not happy. She's not, you know, trying to put together some story. And we're back to therapy again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> most definitely. <laughs> time now to highlight another indie bookstore with staff picks. And this time we hear from the good folks down at Mystery People in Austin, Texas, with some recommended reads and also info on how you can order directly from them. Mystery People is the mystery store inside the larger book people in Austin. And like all indie stores during this crazy quarantine, they are still open for shipping. And uh, they want you to shop remotely, get your stuff uh, from the indie stores. They still want to get a good book in your hands. Uh, Faye, is there any uh, great indie bookstores up where you are in Northern California? Um, There certainly are. There's um, Book Passages in Corta Madera. And there's also the Diesel Bookstore in Oakland. Oh, excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, here's some staff picks. Hey, Eric, this is Scott Montgomery, the crime fiction coordinator at Mystery People, the mystery section of Book People, Texas's largest independent bookstore. And here are my three picks. Uh, The first one is a phenomenal rural noir called The Familiar Dark by Amy Engel. And like a lot of great rural noirs, it deals with class and family in a very interesting way. And also has one heck of a gut punch of a reveal. Uh, You have to be able to deal with bleak. This is an incredibly bleak book. But if you can overcome that or if that's your kind of taste, this is a wonderful book and really well written. And my second one is yet another rural noir, Poison Flood by Jordan Farmer. And its main character is Hollis Bragg, who is a hunchback musician uh, who ghostwrites for an Americana artist. And when... His town uh, gets struck with a, uh, a chemical spill that basically poisons the town's water supply. The same night he witnesses a murder, 
it pulls him out of the shadows and the reclusive life he's been uh, leading forever. This is a book that just has a wonderful sense of empathy for every single character, even the bad guys, for lack of a better term. Uh, it's just it's really well put together and very lyrical, uh, like like a really great Appalachian ballad in a way. And then following up with one of my favorite authors, Joe Lansdale, and his collection of Happen Leonard's short stories called Of Mice and Minestrone. It is basically all of his Happen Leonard stories, or they're all original, and they take place before the first book uh, he wrote about them, Savage Season. It's kind of their younger days. Uh, it has two or three really fun stories with Happen Leonard that you're kind of used to that are very funny and action-packed. Yet, uh, from my money, the one that's worth the price of the book alone is the last one called uh, When the Sabine Was High that deals with a camping trip they both take together after Leonard has just come back from Vietnam. And it's just a very great example of still waters running deep. Uh, all of these are wonderful books. There's so many more, but uh, I was happy to share these three with you. Uh, you can get those and others at bookpeople.com. You can also uh, look uh, on my website uh, or put my name in there, and I can uh, give you other recommendations uh, that I love books I've been reading lately. So uh, thank you for this opportunity, and hope to see you in my bookstore somewhere down the line soon. I'm missing everybody and all my customers. Bye. Oh, all great picks, Scott. I can vouch personally for that Amy Engel book and, and of course, for Joe Lansdale and anything he writes. Uh, and now I'm going to go pick myself up a copy of A Poison Flood. So if those or any of the books we talk about here on Writer Types sound interesting to you, go check out bookpeople.com and they can ship them out to you. Or check out your own local indie bookstore to keep it local. Well, our next guest is Stephen Graham Jones. He's the author of Mongrels, Growing Up Dead in Texas, The Last Final Girl, and many, many more, uh, including his latest, The Only Good Indians. He's been nominated for about every award possible in the horror genre, and he writes in multiple genres. So, Faye, how are you at handling a scary book late at night? Oh, it's I love it. <laughs> I used to run at our and walk at you know really early in the morning at five or four or five, and I would be listening to all kind of zombies and serial killers, and did not phase me. Really? <laughs> My older daughter, especially, is fascinated by all things scary, but especially at night, if she like watches a scary movie or, or reads something scary, she has to have that little palate cleanser before she goes to bed. She's like, I, I need to watch an episode of The Office or something. Just to- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you, you can just read a scary book, right? And then close the yes. book and then close your eyes immediately and you don't care about what dreams may come. No, I don't. Actually, but I do, um, sometimes I'll read, if I read a really heavy book, like a nonfiction book, um, I have to have a palate cleanser as I call it candy, but just like a book for escape. Well, we all know real life is far scarier than fiction. It is. Stephen Graham Jones, uh, you have written in so many different genres and your stories are so inventive. I- I'm constantly jealous when I see a new book come out and I'm like, where did he come up with that crazy thing? <laughs> now, so when you sit down, like, how much intention do you have? Like, Are you thinking, oh, okay, I'm going to write a horror novel or today is the day I write my werewolf book? You know, Or are you just sort of following the muse and going wherever your wild imagination takes you? Yeah, it's, it's more just like sometimes... 
I'm out in the world or in my study or in the garage or wherever and like some shaggy animal runs by and if I do, if I time things just right, I can jump out and grab onto its tail and just just ride, you know. Um, <laughs> and that's really how any any novel of mine that's good, that's how it goes. I've had novels where I outline them and you know have them all meticulously planned, these like mini nested bullet point outlines, and they all suck, you know. They they don't they don't, <laughs> they don't make it to the shelf. So Stephen, your latest, which I've just added to my to be read. Um, pal and I, Thank you. I um, um, but that book is about four Native American men who are, mm-hmm. you know, hunted by their past, mm-hmm. literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there a lot of writing about uh, between the lines about Native American culture in that book? You know, I mean, I have my own like, you know, stances, attitudes, beliefs, um, mm-hmm. petty angers or real angers and everything is like we all have just which it all kind of boils down to like a political stance, you know, I guess. And I think anything that any of us write, we can't help but imbue the work with our political stance, you know? So yeah, I mean, all that, all that stuff is in there, but really what I, all I really wanted to do was um, write a, res- a, a slasher set on the reservation. And, mm. but in order to do that, I had to make it real for an audience who possibly doesn't know the reservation. Yeah. Well, that's, that, that's the tricky part is trying to invite people into a world that you know really well and yeah. make it, you know, believable for them, but yet not sound like a, a travelogue or a history yeah. lesson. That's always. The- yeah. And also to not like, to not like, what's the word, like self exoticize, you know, not, not to say this is like so alien to you. I'm going to make it especially neat. So you'll really want to look at it like um, that, that, that doesn't help anything either, you know? Huh. That's interesting. Yes, extremely interesting. And then mm-hmm. I, I noticed that from your biography, you also do a lot of, you call it like experimental writing. Did any of that like find its way into the Only Good Indians? It did, for sure. The, um, especially in the second part where you start hearing a little bit of second person creeping into the narration. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, which is really actually a the, the se- I don't know if it's a secret. I act like it's a state secret. But um, my first draft of this had the whole first part of that novel in um, what felt like second person. But then there was a turn at the end, which revealed that it was actually a dramatic monologue. I'm really, I just, I really love nested narratives, and I love it when the nested narratives are in different, like in first person, third person, second person, dramatic monologue, epistolary. I love just, I love nesting things inside each other. I, you know, I, I think I get that from my like lifelong. I say lifelong. My last thirty years love affair with Philip K. Dick stuff. You know, because he, he's he's like the master of that as far as I awesome yeah. yeah well like so many texas-born authors it seems to have uh, seeped into your bones even though you're, yeah. you're in colorado now so yeah what is it about that state that affects people <laughs> so so deeply you know i think i think you, you get kind of brainwashed actually like in texas like one thing we all know from you know probably second grade on or so is that we're the only state of the union that can raise our flag as high as the american flag we can raise our flag that high and also there's always that feeling in texas that um we're part of america now but you know we don't really have to be you know we can do do our own thing and um i mean it leads to all kinds of bad stuff i'm not at all like i'm i'm proud of texas politics and any any of that scene you know but but yeah, Texas is definitely in forever in my bones. I mean, this this novel, Only Good Indians, is of course um, set on the reservation, Buckbeat Reservation in Montana. But I didn't grow up there. I just been visiting there. But I always feel like any 
land, any emotional landscape that I try to um, put on the page, even, you know, the reservation or if it's Mars and like 2599 or whatever, when you grab hold of that ground and pull it up, you're going to see West Texas right underneath it, you know, and specifically West Texas because East Texas is weird to me. South Texas is weirder, but Texas is big enough where you have like distinct cultural areas where like the, the cultural codes are all different, you know? So if you're reading like uh, if someone like Joe Lansdale who yeah, writes yeah. intimately about East Texas, that's 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 a whole different experience for you. That, that's a whole different thing. Yeah, like every once in a while when people are talking about Joe and me, they'll flop us and they'll say he's West Texas or I'm East Texas or something like that, and it just feels oh. feels feels weird. Like I don't know nothing about um, oh. humidity, humidity and alligators. You know, I know about <laughs> I know about horny toads and and being able to see for 25 miles in any direction. You know? <laughs> Oh, them's fighting words, West, <laughs> yeah. West and East. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, another thing that uh, I find quite interesting because I find it in my own work right now is that you've, you've actually written in crime and horror. Yeah. And, um, but do you have a preference for one or the other? Do you think there is overlap there? And how did that come about? Yeah. I don't think there's overlap. And I mean, I never thought about this, but I guess the overlap might be that, um, the concern in both crime fiction and horror fiction is justice. You know, it's just mm-hmm. the the mechanism by which justice is served is different in both genres. I think like in, in horror, like in a slasher specifically or in the only good Indian, somebody does something bad and then the world um, punishes them. The world like spits up a spirit of vengeance that, um, you know, make, makes them pay for their sins. And in crime, it, I mean, whether you're coming from the law side or the crime side, it's always an issue of, are we going to get caught? You know, are we going to catch them? Are they going to get punished? Are they going to get the justice they deserve or that we think they deserve anyways? And do you find that in your work, the endings are neat and they do find the justice or do you find it's in your work? Does the, um, the wrap up is that kind of ambiguous? I prefer it to be, I mean, not like a, quite a bow tie but i think i think a writer owes it to the reader to deliver them at least um an end to the dramatic line i think the narrative Mm -hmm. can stay the narrative can stay open but the dramatic line like the problem like there's a body on the floor on page one by the end of that novel you need to know how that body got there that's the end of the dramatic line and i think we owe it to the um reader to supply that if if we get to the end and we're like well we still know who did it then we failed that's i i, I wish i could share that advice with uh some things that i've read lately <laughs> <laughs> or tv show I, I i watched it i watched a tv show the other day where it was like, like i and granted yes you end one season and you want there to be a little yeah. bit of a cliffhanger but it was yeah. so unresolved <laughs> just like you're saying i was just i was frustrated i was like i just gave you you know eight yeah. hours of my time yeah. Give me something. Exactly. Yeah. It's paid back our investment. For sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, Stephen, you've been uh, very prolific and uh, it always becomes a point of uh, something to mention when talking about authors because I've, I've felt this myself. Like I put out a lot of books mm-hmm. in a short period of time and I've had fellow authors, you know, tease me and mm-hmm. you know, give me, give me shit about yeah. it, frankly. But yeah. I mean, do you think that, that's a plus to release so much material and, and, and to keep readers hopefully engaged in a lot of different, uh, different things. I, Cause I'm still trying to sort of decide this for myself. Like it's, yeah. has it been a good thing to release a ton of yeah. material? Am I overwhelming people? Do you, do you like putting out a lot of stuff? I do. Like I, I had two or three years there where I had 
four or five books each year. And that was just a blow to me. I, I just love having different kind of books come out. It makes me extremely happy. But um, I signed on with a new agent in 2014. And the first thing she told me was, you're going to publish way less books, like maybe uh-huh. maybe one every other year or something. Mm. She says, she says we, need, we need to make each publication more of an event instead of you don't want to give the audience, which is the consumer, is you know, is the way she's saying it, yeah. so the, the chance to say, oh, it's just another Stephen Graham Jones book. I can get the next one. I'll be I'll be fine. And she's been right. My career has changed a lot since I signed on with her. All right, that's it. If I, I kind of in the same boat, or I was, I was yeah. like. Because I, I've had a lot of, especially, you know, some of the indie authors that I, mm-hmm. that I know, people who've gone to exclusively self-publishing and things like mm-hmm. that, they're like, no, no, you, you got to keep feeding the machine. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, okay, well, I have all this material. Yeah, let's yeah. get it out there. But it yeah. didn't necessarily, it wasn't necessarily a case of rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of sales, which is, yeah. you know, crass to say, but that's yeah, the world yeah. we live in. <laughs> no, the sa- I mean, sales are the, the best feedback loop there is. You know, it tells you whether your stuff is connecting, I think. And yeah. a, lot of, a lot of people try to pretend like the market doesn't exist. Only like history or the critics exist. But I, I think the market tells you whether you're doing it right or not. I mean, I'm not saying the market's um, your only guide. You know, I think your own like artistic integrity has to be your own guide. But you do sometimes have to shape something to better find a place on the shelf. And that's approaching it like work, right? Not, um, you know, I think that one thing we lose as artists is that we approach it as a creative endeavor that you're only going to do when the inspiration strikes you. But Mm -hmm. in reality, I think that um, being prolific, and I never understood that criticism because Joyce Carol Oates gets it a lot yeah. too. Yeah, and and yeah. I can't, I don't do that. I mean, I don't, I don't write as mm-hmm. um, <laughs> fast. It's just, it's just my mm-hmm. um, aspiration to do more work. But mm-hmm. I mean, it makes you a better writer, don't you think? To, to be, yeah. always be creating and, and it, it sharpens the tools in your toolbox. Oh, definitely. So, it definitely yeah. does. And the, the trick is, Finally, what matters is the product. It doesn't matter if it takes you eight years to write it or like eight weeks or eight days. It the what the product is what matters, you know. And yeah, that's what I'm always trying to impress upon my students. Um, well, I, I, what I what I one thing I try to impre- impress upon them too is if you're writing a short story for six years, then you're not doing yourself any favors, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Put it down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing that uh, you gave an interview where you talked about the first time you saw um, an Indian on a page, uh, Thomas Blackwell. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I started to think back to my own um, my own awakening as a, yeah. an, an author. And mine was Tar Baby. So that oh. was the first time from Toni Morrison. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, and I'm wondering, obviously, you are in a very unique position to be able to write from a Native American perspective, mm-hmm. these Native American stories. Do you find that, you know, how important is it to you to represent the culture to readers or is it secondary to telling a good story? I know as an African-American writer, sometimes I feel pressured to include things that may not be necessary for story. How do you deal with that? Yeah, there is. There's always that pressure. Like, I mean, it's not not necessarily a pressure to be a spokesperson for your whole culture or anything, but you do you do feel like almost a responsibility to correct things that you've seen going wrong and stuff like that. And it's easy to get trapped in that loop of I've got to be responsible. But, um, I, I, you know, at the same time, I firmly believe that the moment art 
becomes responsible, it quits being art, you know? I, I want to be always, I, I want to always have license to also do bad representation if I, if I need to for the story, you know? Because mm-hmm. I do think the story comes first. Like for me, with The Only Good Indians, what was most important to me was that it maybe made somebody stay up an hour later at night because they were scared, mm-hmm. you know? So that's, <laughs> that's the most important thing to me. Yes, I want to, you know, represent American Indian life in a way that is real to me anyways, and hopefully will resonate with someone else. But, you know, if I were writing about astronauts, I would also try to represent them in a way that was authentic, you know, that dealt with the way their spacesuits work or the way zero gravity is and all that stuff. And Mm -hmm. I think just as a writer, whoever you're writing about, if you want to make your story real and have impact and last, then you're kind of obligated to get it right, you know? Yes, and to me, it always has to. You always have to be true to your the story that you're telling. Yeah. And then there's you're a professor, so yeah. you teach you teach the stuff. And yeah. I heard that you have classes like zombies, um, yeah. and 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 one of the things that I think that we kind of forget is that fact that genre fiction is. I think is really important to American to any society, mm-hmm. um, because it says something about that society. What's your take on how important genre fiction is? Um, and then there's mm-hmm. this war with literary fiction, which yeah. is another thing I don't understand. Yeah. You know, I think that the, the way that genre writers and what we call literary writers are always kind of, you know, at loggerheads, uh, it seems to me to come down to the fact that literary writers want to want to cash the checks the genre writers are getting, and genre writers want the respect the literary writers are getting, you know? <laughs> uh, I remember back in... probably late 90s, I was listening to some poet talk, and he was saying that form in poetry, like a Villanelle or a Sestina or a couplet or whatever Mm -hmm. it is, um, it's a baffle. And what that baffle does, it's like that that keeps your critical mind occupied. And while your critical mind is occupied trying to stage a rhyme in a Sestina, then something real can sometimes slip through, you know? And Mm. to me, that's how genre works. When I'm writing a zombie story and I realize I have to um, have somebody eat a brain right here. I'm so worried trying to make that real and scary and goofy that something real might accidentally find its way onto the page. I, I think all fiction can be like um, nutritious in some manner. It can give you calories or protein or whatever you need for your mind, your emotions, your heart, and everything. It, it can have good stuff. It can have layers of that, like a layer cake. And, but the trick is, if I put a, just a naked layer cake across the room, nobody's going to wander over and get a piece of that. If I lather it up with the sweetest icing, people are going to go over there and cut themselves a big old slice. And to me, the genre is the icing. Yeah, nice. I totally agree. That, that Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I don't know about you, Faye, but I want to sign up for one of his classes now. Me too. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for this one. Faye, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, Eric, thank you so much for um, allowing me to come onto your show and <laughs> um, just talk to those wonderful guests. It was It's much appreciated, and I had a grand time. Excellent. Well, we look forward to uh, whatever you have coming next. I'm excited that there's going to be a sequel to uh, Killing Fire, more Raven Burns on the way. Yes. Uh, yes, I assume we have okay. we have to wait a while though, right? Because you're you're still uh, I'm still at it. kind of writing it. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll get back <laughs> to it. I will, I will, and I I promise the dog won't eat it. <laughs> It'll get out there. <laughs> okay, good. Well, you can keep up with the show at writertypespodcast.com. You can always find us on Twitter at writertypes. 
Faye, you stay safe and healthy up there, and thanks again. Okay, you're welcome, Eric. You stay safe as well. 